All right, in Acts chapter 6, I'm just going to read these first few verses for you. If you've turned there, it's on page 1083, if you have the Pew Bible. But it says, In those days when the number of disciples was increasing, the Grecian Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. So the twelve gathered all the disciples together and, and they said, it would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. Brothers, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the spirit and wisdom. We will turn this responsibility over to them. And we will give our attention to prayer and to the ministry of the word. You see, in the early church, you have to remember they're in, in and around Jerusalem. And in and around Jerusalem is where the Jews lived. Those who spoke Hebrew because they had been raised there, Hebrew and Aramaic, were the natives of that land. And those who spoke Greek had come to Jerusalem from other parts of the empire. It was the Greek empire, now it's the Roman empire. But they had come there. They may not have known the language. They were not born necessarily as Hebraic speakers. And so they are adjusting to the culture and the climate of Jerusalem in which the early church has been born. So the church is in a very sort of small metropolitan area at this point. It's not going to stay there, but for right now, the church of Jesus Christ, which was born on the day of Pentecost, which we read about in Acts chapter 2, is really centered around one city and one people group. So in this setting, there were far more Jewish Christians, Jews who had been converted to Christianity to follow Christ than there were Greek Christians at this point. This will change as history goes on, but at this point, the Jews far outnumbered those who were Greek in their background and in their culture. And the church now had to come to grips with the problem that this caused. It was the problem of majority versus minority. It's a common problem, isn't it? It's been a problem from day one and continues to be a problem. Those in the majority can easily overlook, even unknowingly, they cannot see what it's like to be a minority in their culture, in their situation. So even in the church, we're finding early on here, in the, in the infancy of the church, the Holy Spirit wanting to let this be known, revealing it through the feelings, through the emotions that are taking place here, so that God can give them wisdom on how to deal with this. Because the church is all about unity. So this problem has to be acknowledged and addressed by God's people in order for them to continue to walk as one. Now I want you to just keep your finger in that space and turn over to the, the book of Matthew, because I want to hear... I want you to hear the words of Jesus, and I want us to apply that to these widows. I would call them the least of these. In Matthew chapter 25, verse 40, this is a, a, a long story of the sheep and the goats, and I'm not going to read the whole thing, but I want you to, to, to hear the words that Jesus is teaching his disciples. It's on page 984 in the Pew Bible. The king will reply, I tell you the truth. 
Whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers of mine, you did for me. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you who are cursed into an eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger and you didn't even invite me in. I needed clothes and you did not clothe me. I was sick and in prison and you did not look after me. They will also answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty, a stranger, needing clothes, sick or in prison, and did not help you? And he says in verse 45, he will reply, I tell you the truth, whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do for me. Jesus taught this parable to highlight how important it is for us as a community and maybe as a majority community to understand how to find and minister to the least of these. So this passage is going to help us as a church. It has helped the church throughout the the decades and the centuries and the millennial. It has helped us to stay on track with the heart of Jesus. Remember, we we, we talk about the heart of Jesus. It's not laws and and things like that 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 guide us. It's the heart of Jesus, the compassion of God that we are to carry into the world. You see, so far in the New Testament church, we've not seen any mention of any ethnic or cultural diversity at all. But right here in chapter 6, so go back to Acts, chapter 6, verse 1, while the church is still in its infancy, still in its beginning, there is tension. There are groups that have formed. This is natural for people, but it is not supernatural for God. It's a natural inclination that we have to, to birds of a feather flock together to sort of be with those who are like us. But by doing that, we exclude those who are not like us. And this is not the heart of Jesus. So now we know that Jesus has commanded his disciples to go into all nations of the world with his message of God's love, with his message of redemption. And we know that God's family is made up of people from every tribe, every tongue, every nation. We see that in the Revelation, the book of Revelation when they're surrounding the throne of God and worshiping him in the heavenly realm, there's there's people from every group. So no group is excluded. So this issue of unity in the midst of diversity is very important. And it had to be addressed again and again in the church in order for the church to remain one in God's eyes. United, just as Jesus prayed that we would be one. So this passage is good for us because it helps us to know that our theology, our theology must be worked out into practical living. We don't just believe a certain, certain things up here in our head or even here in our hearts. We believe them in such a way that they change how we behave. They change how we treat people. They change who we see and how we respond to what we see and who we see. If not, there's something wrong. See, this is often a problem for Christians. We can believe and proclaim all kinds of things, but if we don't work them out into our lives and turn them into blessing for God and for others, 
We're failing. We're, we're falling short. We're not fulfilling God's purposes for us. So in Acts chapter 6, this particular problem is that the Grecian Jewish Christians and the Hebraic Jewish Christians are not acting as one. Those who are of Greek descent are feeling like they're being overlooked, ignored, not cared for. So this problem seems to flow out of what we've read so far. There's a lot of generosity going around among the members of the church. If you look back into chapter 4, just, just turn the page there. Chapter 4, verse 34, says there were no needy persons among them. So just one page back. I don't know how many days are between pages here in the Bible, but, but just a little while ago, it says there were no needy persons among them. Because from time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them and they brought the money from the sale and put it at the apostles' feet. And then it was distributed to anyone who had need. So just a little while ago, this was working out. Inspired by God, inspired by a spirit of generosity in God's people, all the needs were being taken care of. Now, in chapter 6, verse 1, all of a sudden... There's a group whose needs are not being taken care of. What has happened? What has changed? It seems the apostles who were in charge of, of distributing to the needs of those may have gotten distracted. It seems that after being arrested a couple times, which that's what's happened between these two things, arrested and released and rearrested and flogged and warned, they may have gotten off track a little bit in caring for the needs of others. That's common. That's human. I mean, how much can you handle, right, as one human being or even one small group of human beings? So what God does is what God always does. He multiplies. He multiplies. He takes the few and he multiplies to more, and that's what we're going to see. You see, these guys had become extremely busy, whether getting arrested or going and preaching and teaching back in the temple in fact, in, in, in chapter 5, so between 4 and 5, when all the needs were met in 4 and where we are in 6, it says in 5, it says they never stopped teaching or proclaiming the good news of Jesus Christ. If they never stopped teaching and proclaiming the good news, who was distributing and helping the needy and helping those who needed help? So... I don't think that this is a, 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 an act of racism. I think this is an act of inadvertently neglecting something because other things have come up. This happens to the best of us, right? Admit it. There are times when you set out to do one thing, but you end up doing something else and neglecting that one thing. And that one thing may be very important. It may be p paying your bills or doing something like that, and, and you just forgot because so many other things have gotten in the way. This is, again, a way to see how much we need the Holy Spirit, how much we need each other and the Holy Spirit as brothers and sisters in Christ. You see, a certain minority group in their midst, these Greek widows, were not being cared for. They were being overlooked. And since we know that our God never wastes a problem but he uses it to teach us something very important. What do you think that he is teaching here through the Holy Spirit? Well, number one, I think that the church will grow through this situation to be more culturally aware, aware that there are people different than themselves. 
That's an important thing to know. You are not the only kind of person in the church. There are other kinds of people. God is going to go to every tribe and every nation and every people group and draw people to himself. So they'll speak different languages. They'll eat different kinds of food. They'll dress differently. They'll do their hair differently. I mean, there'll be all kinds of different people. The variety, the diversity is beautiful. God created it that way. But as a church, we have to stay aware of that. And we have to be careful that we don't exclude people who are different from us. So that's number one lesson. The number two lesson is that God will teach us how to manage his resources fairly and wisely. He gives us resources. We share those resources. We need to do it in a way that never excludes a particular people group or a particular person. But we need to do it fairly and wisely. Now, this is not something brand new for the church. In fact, in the people of God in the Old Testament, the Jewish nation, when Moses brought the people out of slavery and into freedom for the first time, and he's now on his way, on his journey to the land of promise, in Exodus 18, he has a problem because he's exhausting himself trying to work out the problems between the people, the different debates, the different situations. They're coming to him, and they're coming to him, and they're coming to him. And finally, his father-in-law, who happens to be visiting, says, Moses, you are wearing yourself out trying to care for all these people and all their problems. And Jethro, the father-in-law, gives him good advice. He says, delegate. Delegate. Get some other people to help you with this task. You see, Moses needed to learn how to manage a large and growing group of people in the promised land, the people who had been slaves and didn't know how to even manage their own lives. But now in the, in the book of Pentecost, in the book of Acts, in the church of the Pentecost, as it grows and as God continues to bring more people into the church, they need to know how to manage as well. And sometimes management sounds boring in the church. We read about the miracles, and we highlight those parts. Oh, this guy who was raised from the dead, and this guy, his, his, his arm that was withered comes back to life again. We, we love those, but we forget about the management of the body of Christ, that God set it up in such a certain way. I'm not a great manager. I manage with God's grace and with his help, but I'm not great at it. I'm always struck by the parts of the Bible that I skip over. For instance, if I were Noah and God was giving me instructions on how big the ark was supposed to be and how to cut all those angles and make that boat, I would have failed miserably. I would need someone to help me, some, some kind of engineer who could help me do that. And I'd need the power of the Holy Spirit to help me to stay sensitive to the details. That's what we need as a church as well. We love the story of Noah's ark because it's a story of salvation, how he saves a group of people through the flood by his grace, by his love. And he also saves the animals. We love that story. But we forget the detail and the length of time it took to build that boat. It took years and years and years to build that boat. So as we think about the church, we have to realize that God has called us together with diverse backgrounds, with diverse gifts, and he's building a boat. He's building a boat to bring salvation to his people. So at Holden Chapel, I just want to explain for some of you who don't know us well, Holden Chapel, we have seven very active church elders who are such a blessing to me as a pastor because we work together. They help me in multiple ways. But even the seven of us, as good as we might be, can't possibly cover the multiple needs 
in one church body, represented by you and your loved ones and your families. Because it isn't just you in the pew. It's you and then your kids and your friends. and your, it, it, You represent a community of people where you live, the people you work with. So we are trying as a church to meet those needs, but even the seven of us can't do it. And so we have about 35 other members of the church who serve on formal committees. They help us to run our school ministry. They help us to run our missions ministry. And those people take some of the load and, and, and help us to make decisions and manage things like our school and our missionaries and our building and our facilities and our finances. There's even a special group of people who help to bring those people and put them in that place. They're called the nominating committee. And some of you may have been contacted by the nominating committee, and I want to thank you for saying yes to serving next year. When we start in the fall, that'll be our next year, and you'll be serving in particular ways to help the body of Christ to delegate the work so that we can manage God's resources and make disciples with those resources. That's our goal. But these seven dedicated leaders, these 35 committee members, is still not enough. We have another whole group of 50 people or more who we call ministry leaders. And those ministry leaders are the ones who serve God in various ways they're serving you. They're running Bible studies. They're hosting home groups. They're doing outreach in the city. They're leaders who help us to, to, to manage our finances and help people to learn how to manage finances in their own home. There's people that provide church safety for us and hospitality and a prayer ministry and practical helpers who will come into your home and help you to fix stuff if you are being ministered to by the Faith Works ministry. There's so many ministries. It's an awesome opportunity to see what God has done by pointing out that there are more needs and that there are more people that should be involved in meeting those needs. So why do we have so many people ministering for God in and through the church, because of this passage here today, we don't want to overlook anybody. It's one of our goals. We don't want to overlook people and have them sitting in the pew suffering, being ignored by the people of God. Because God doesn't ignore people. God sees the hurting. He draws close to the brokenhearted, Scripture tells us. And so we have to work ourselves with the power of the Spirit to, to make sure that we're doing the best we can. We will not be perfect, and we are not perfect in this world, but we're striving to be who God has called us to be. You see, a few leaders, no matter how dedicated or filled with the Spirit of God, can easily be overwhelmed by complex problems, problems inside the church and problems outside the church, problems that arise in people's lives. Caring for the needs of God's people is extremely important for the church, especially caring for the hurting and the poor. If you read scripture, it's repeated over and over again. So caring for the needs of God's people is what we are called to do. And it's no small job that can be done by one person or, or one small group of people. It's a job for the whole church. I need you to hear that this morning. As we read God's word, it's a job for you and for me as members of God's church that we share the work of caring for and loving and ministering to and teaching and, and, and all the things, praying for, that we share that work together. 
So Acts 6 teaches us that. Even the apostles who we put way up on a pedestal and we say, wow, they walked with Jesus. They were in that boat when he calmed the storm. They saw Lazarus come back. Even those apostles couldn't do it all. So who are we to think that we can do it all? I'll admit, I'll be the first to admit, I can't do it all. I won't even try to do it all. That would be crazy. And when I find myself doing too much, I feel it. I feel it inside of me. There's a weariness and a heaviness that is not the joy of the Lord. It's not the joy of the Lord that's my strength. And so I have to pull back and say, God, show me. How do I delegate? Who else can be involved in this ministry with me so that more people can be blessed through it? In Acts chapter 6, it's the Greek-speaking widows who needed help. And throughout history, caring for widows is a very special problem. It may not be the only problem that we have today, but it helps us to be alert to looking out for similar problems. So it may help us to think of anyone in our midst who may be vulnerable, who may be lonely, who may be poverty-stricken, who may not have enough money to make ends meet, who may feel powerless, who may feel overlooked, etc. And in Acts chapter 6, it was the Greek widows. Now, why? We have to ask that question so we can understand, because there's a system at work, and they were being overlooked because in history, in that time in history, if the head of the household died, all of his because it was a patriarchal system, all of his possessions went to his son, not to his widow. There was a flaw in the system that they had developed. It wasn't God's system. It was a system that mankind had developed. We all live within systems. There's a government. There's a social security system. There's all kinds of systems that work around us. But within the system at this time and throughout ancient history, widows were in tough shape. Because everything that their husband had earned, all the property, all the possessions, didn't go to her when he died. They went to his son or sons. If there were multiple sons, the eldest son got it, and then he distributed it among the other sons. So who was overlooked? The widows and the daughters. But the widows, they were overlooked in this system. The whole inheritance to continue the family name was was bypassing the widows. So they were told that they needed to return to their birth family. Now, sometimes that's easy. Maybe if you live in that region with your birth family, you could move back in with your mom and dad, even if you were, but your mom and dad may have died a long time ago if you're an older widow. So who do you move in with? How do you find your way in the world? So widows were in a tough place and they had no one to care for them especially if their sons were rebellious against them and didn't, didn't honor them the way that God told them to honor their mother and father. And so, this is the first group that we're seeing here in the early church that needs attention. But I'm wondering if you could help me. I've asked a few people this week. Help me to think of other than widows, others who may be overlooked in our community. Others who may be suffering in the minority, maybe suffering because they are the only ones who understand their problem. It's not easy for us to think about, is it? 
We live in, in a pretty uh, affluent area of the country, New England. And we live in the suburbs of a city, so we're not in the inner city. And so it's sometimes hard for us to see the needs around us. But they do exist. And with the help of the Holy Spirit, he can show us those needs. So I, I surveyed a few people, and I'll give you a few ideas, and then I want to see if you have any extra ideas. So wh- one of the persons that I spoke to about this, you know, who are the needy people in our society, in our community? And they, they said, I think foster children. Foster children need a home. They bounced around sometimes from home to home to home to home. They're homeless children. You know, they're not walking the streets, but often they're carted from one place to another and all their belongings in a garbage bag. And they're dropped off at another house for a while and they're dropped off at another house. Foster children. That was a good answer. I liked that. And it's true. The other group of people may be those who are challenged in any particular way, maybe a physical challenge, maybe a mental challenge or an emotional challenge. Those who just don't quite fit in. Sometimes when, you, when you're trying to relate to them, you can't relate because of their disability. And so often they're off to the side or they're left out. We need to be conscious of that, aware of that. Keep our eyes open. Don't overlook them. So I gave you two. Any more ideas? I'd love to have a few more ideas. Those who may be overlooked, those who may be underprivileged in our society or even in our church, church community. Yes, up there. Single people, yes. Often people who are single, not married, within a church community where marriage is is held up as a high thing, sometimes they feel excluded, and sometimes they are excluded. They're left off the list. So the one behind you, Liz. Mental health issues. Yeah, that's what I was alluding to, but you're, you're right. I see one here. Kids that don't have a dad. Yeah, so single people, that, this could lead to single people who are divorced, who no longer have their spouse to help them to raise those kids. And so they end up fatherless. They may have a mom who's working real hard to try to keep the house together, but they don't have a dad in their home or vice versa. Yes, Kim? The homeless. Yeah. We don't see them as much in the streets of Holden and Rutland and Paxton and Princeton, but if you go into Worcester... And then if you go further into Boston, you will see the homeless. And you'll see the, the, the confusion that our society has trying to figure out how to care for these people and how to bring resources to them. Great. Good ideas. Good ideas. Now, I want you to be aware of that as we continue to go on and learn what we learned about this situation and see if we can apply it in our situation. You see, at that time, the Christian church was growing very fast. But remember, also, the persecution of the Christian church was growing fast. We've seen it already with the apostles being arrested and warned and and told that they should not be doing the teaching of Jesus anymore. It may have to do, some of what's happening here with the widows may also have to do with this persecution. They may have, before they became Christians, been able to resource what the Jewish temple community used to take care of its widows. And now that they had followed Christ, and now that they are known to follow Christ, they may no longer be welcome to receive help there. So we need to be aware of that. Their situation was was drastic. They were cut off from any help that they could have. 
I believe that that problem, again, was not because of, of, of racism in, a, in an overt way, but because they were a minority and they weren't as vocal, maybe, or as, vis, as visual in the meetings and in, and in the time that the church spent together. And that they could have been neglected because of the busyness and the size of the Christian community. This is going to change. God's going to change things here. And, and we're going we're gonna to struggle with how he changes things here. But it's going to change pretty soon. The church is going to be persecuted to such a degree that it breaks off into smaller groups. Because it's growing and growing and growing. It's one of the reasons that I love a, a small local church as opposed to a mega church. Because in a local church, you can get to know people by name. You can begin to establish relationships. You can begin to know what their needs are and also what their gifts are to help to meet other people's needs. So here's what they say, the apostles. And we need to keep this all in check. There's the, the needs of the people and there's the commandment of God to go and make disciples, teaching them everything that Jesus said. Look at, what, look at what it says here in this passage. They knew, the apostles knew, that it would not be right for them to neglect teaching others the word of God. They couldn't stop doing that. They had to keep teaching the word of God. Why? Because they're the church of Jesus Christ. And people need to know about Jesus. They need to know God's word. That's how we learn about Jesus. Yes, we see it in some of the ways in which we care for people, feeding them, clothing them, and that, but they also need the verbal truth spoken into their lives. And so the apostles are given that specific responsibility. The good news is the first priority of God's church. If we lose that, we're no longer the church. So churches have to stay focused on God's word, holding tightly to it, because it is the source of truth. It is the source of life. And it is the light that we take out into a dark world when we go to serve and to love and to care. We do it equipped with the word of God. However, there's so much more to being a church than just teaching or preaching. And some people would disagree with this. But there is more to being a church than just teaching God's word or preaching God's word. Would you agree? There's more to it. In fact, Jesus commanded us to love one another. The people who make up God's church must be cared for. And we, not, we need to do it together. Now, in the book of James, which is a little later in the New Testament, James begins to address a problem Again, that's similar to this. In James chapter 2, he gives this, this situation. He says, suppose that a brother or sister is without clothes or without daily food. If one of you says to them, go, I wish you well. Keep warm. Be well fed. But does nothing about those physical needs. What good is that? What good is that? Faith by itself, if not accompanied by action, is dead. So these two things have to be tied together. Notice the apostles didn't drop the teaching of the word and start going and feeding people. They invited the Christian community through a democratic move, really, to, in, to, to choose their own leaders 
This is what Holden Chapel does too. We do it every year at annual meeting. This year's annual meeting is September 11th, but we do it every year. We, we use the members of the church, the people who have committed themselves to this church as their home body, to choose the leaders, to put them in place, to continue to affirm that they are the ones that God has called. The method by which they were chosen here in, in Acts chapter 6, it's not mentioned, so it, can, it must not be important. All he says in verse 3 is, Choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom. So he didn't stop with choose seven men. They have to be known to be full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom. And this pleased everyone. And so they chose seven men to start out here to begin to build this ministry of caring. Interesting fact about the names that are listed there in in Acts chapter 6. Verse 5, all of those names are Greek names. So the apostles all came from Jerusalem and the surrounding Galilee. They were all good Jews. They'd been to synagogue. They'd been part of the Jewish community around Jerusalem. These men who were called to serve, because the the issue was that the Greek community, the Greek speakers, the Greek widows were being overlooked, these are all Greeks. Greeks. Every single one of these names is a Greek name. And so they balanced out the power in the church, the service in the church, the way in which the leadership was done in the church by bringing in those who could share the life perspective, the culture, the understanding of the language together with the leaders and together with the whole church to take on the needs of the whole congregation which does free up the 12 apostles to pay attention to the word and to prayer. Now, just a quick note. There's a a section in here that says, we're not going to give up the word and teaching and prayer for waiting on tables. Now, waiting on tables is not an insult. It's just a way to illustrate serving, right? Christians, all Christians, leaders, disciples are called to serve. Jesus washed his disciples' feet. That is the lowest of the lowest of the lowest position in in, in a household. The guy who stays at the door and washes people's dirty feet. Jesus did that. And so Jesus said, go and do likewise. Wash one another's feet. Serve one another. Service is the epitome of leadership in the Christian church. It's not being an entrepreneur. It's not being a great lecturer. It is service. Are you willing to serve others and meet their needs as practically as they are? And we have to balance these two things out. It's not just one, teaching, and the other, caring, but it's both, teaching and caring. And one without the other is weak. You have to have both to be a strong Christian community. And the balance between these two types of ministry is what should continue to guide all churches of Jesus Christ today. It's not all about the teaching. It's not all about the serving. It's a balance between the two. And we help to balance each other out because we have different gifts and abilities. And the great thing is that when this balance is put in place, God's blessing continues to flow through the church. Look at verse 7, and we'll be wrapping up. So the word of God continued to spread. And the number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly. And a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. 
That's a big deal for them because these people were set against Jesus and now we're coming over to him. Even though they were in leadership positions, they came over to him and made themselves disciples of Jesus Christ. So let's pray. Lord, we pray that you would help us to understand how to balance our lives as individuals, but also our life as a church, that we may be faithful to your word, teaching it, preaching it, applying it, praying for results from it, but at the same time faithful to serve your people, to love those who are overlooked, and to bring them into your family as sons and daughters of Jesus Christ. So thank you for this time together. We pray that your word would produce fruit in our lives, fruit that will last. In Jesus' name.